0: Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Victor Kinzer, and I am here with my co-host, Simon Eichhornchen. We've had interviews for the last couple episodes. We're going to go back to a somewhat more standard format today. This is one of the topics that came out of a question we threw out to Facebook, just asking what people wanted us to talk about. And one of the topics that came up was character creation. Simon and I kind of banged our heads together, thought about, could we make an episode about character creation? Could that be a whole episode? And this is our attempt to make that happen because it was something that quite a few people were interested in. So yeah, character creation. Simon and Changeling, what are the first things that you think about when you think about how do you go about creating a Changeling?
1: My character creation process is... I don't know if I want to call it non-standard but it is not the way everybody else I know does it for everything generally I start with the core concept of what I want my character to be and then I go back to the system and fill in the blanks from there and try to keep that core concept in mind I know a lot of other people start from well this would be a cool power let me build a character around it I don't think that's an invalid way to do it. It's just not my way. How do you build characters?
0: I almost never start with powers. Certainly in Changeling, I don't start with powers. I generally start with what is the story that I want to be a part of. I tend not to do the the kind of first step when I make more traditional characters, vampires, mages, and whatnot, is like, who was I? What's the life I lived? Where did I come from? And I don't actually start there with Changeling. That's kind of the second step for me. My first step is, what is my myth? What myth do I want to be? And I will say, this is when I'm making a more involved Chronicle character. If I'm making a character for like a a one-shot LARP, I did the, the red cap I made for the Changeling LARP at Midwinter it was pretty standard, pick a kiss all right, what's my concept? But if I'm going to make a character that I'm going to live with for a while in Changeling, I want to know what their myth is, what's their story, what's their loss. And then I kind of go from there to Kith. Now, I usually kind of have a Kith in mind. Like by the time I even have the beginning of a what's my story, I probably have it narrowed down to one or two, but I try not to pick Kith first because I find that's kind of limiting. The splat model from Old World of Darkness can be a uh, pigeonhole you very early, so I try to avoid that.
1: I think one of the places where, when I'm making characters, I go way off of other people's processes is early on, I try to decide what their epiphany style is going to be like what it is they choose to feed from, whether they're a ravager or a reverie practitioner, and then. A lot of the time, their personality builds out of that for me. You can, you know, have somebody whose feeding style is off-type for their personality, and that can be interesting. It's just not the way I usually play.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You know, thinking about that, I start from myth, but epiphany is usually part of that before I really get to Kith. I'm not a big fan of the very kind of narrow, okay, what's your reverie threshold? What's your ravaging threshold? That's how you feed. I prefer to leave feeding a little bit more open. I think in C20, it presented those thresholds as more specialties, which I liked, but they still it still felt very narrow. I almost want to get rid of the threshold altogether, but... I still think that there's certain things that a character will lean towards, but I prefer to have kind of an array of feeding styles, depending on mood and which legacy I'm in, because I like the very shifting nature, the almost mood-swingy nature of what shifting legacies can represent. It tends to get de-emphasized for a lot of Kiths, but I like the characters where... Changing legacy is an integral part of who they are, so I try to build that out, even if it's not going to be quite as, I'm a different legacy every other week, satyr kind of character, even if it's, I might only change legacies two or three times over the Chronicle, but it's going to happen. I want to have the full binary of that built out. I want both sides of that coin to be very well defined, as opposed to like, I've made this super silly sca and yeah, I have an unsealed nature, but like, whatever. And then something happens, and your ST looks at you and like, nope, you are flipping legacies, deal with it. And then you have no idea who you are. Like You just really don't want to be stuck in that place playing Changeling.
1: Right. One of the things I always have trouble with is choosing legacies, because... God, the world, yes. The World of Darkness personality system has always kind of bugged me. It's a step up from, like... 3rd edition D&D where you're trapped in alignments, but it's only a step up. It's not all the way to, like, here, build out your personality and, like, here's this tangential system bonus you get. The games I've played and the games I've ST'd, we often aren't quite sure what to do with Legacies, because Changeling isn't super willpower heavy in a lot of its play. So it ends up de-emphasized a lot.
0: The only World of Darkness game I've ever really played that is willpower heavy is mage. And I think it's because I was a heavy-duty mage player before I was a heavy-duty changeling player. It always surprises me that changelings don't use their willpower. And I, I get why they don't use it as much, but just incidental but important roles, like it's a mundane role, but it's super important... Where in Mage, everyone would be like, yeah, I'm going to use willpower, are you kidding me? In Changeling, it doesn't come up. In my current campaign, one of my characters took a merit that I had never seen before. I forget the name of it. It's something along the lines of strong-willed. It's a C20 merit. And any time he spends willpower and succeeds on the roll, even if the willpower is the only success, he gets his willpower back. So the only time he spends a willpower and doesn't get the auto willpower back, he has to basically have rolled a botch and that spent willpower will prevent a botch. There is no reason for him to ever not spend willpower. This is the most, I mean, it's like a five point merit, but I still kind of feel like it's broken and he still doesn't remember to use it like two thirds of the time. There's just something about changeling that really pushes people away from that part of the system. And it does put legacies in a weird place. I like the legacies more than nature and demeanor. But I feel the same way as what you just said about D&D. It's like nature and demeanor is a step up from D&D. The legacies are a little bit more interesting than nature and demeanor, but they're still like, I just sort of treat them as rough guidelines and I give willpower back when people sleep and I don't sweat it too much.
1: Changeling has this weird place, kind of like Mage, where the flavor you're choosing for your character ends up being way more important than a lot of the crunchy bits like in mage your paradigm has a lot more to do with what you're able to do supernaturally and with changeling especially if your table's using the i guess it doesn't really have a name but i've always thought of it as the glamour resonance rule the it's occasionally mentioned in like two sidebars every once in a while that if you use ravaged glamour or dross to power a creative cantrip you're at a difficulty penalty and if you use you know ravaged glamour to power a destructive cantrip you are at a difficulty bonus and like i've never not played that way but i do get that it's kind of an arcane rule but it lends itself to creating more complete character concepts because it ties more strongly the way you want your character to engage with magic to the way your character feeds to your personality, because legacy is a part of that. People who are in their positive legacy are going to be more likely to reverie, and people who are in their negative legacy are more likely to ravage, although that's not a solid rule. And I enjoy that. I always wonder how much other people think about those things, though.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I I think part of the reason I've never really done that is I am not a big fan of Sealy and Unseelie as positive and negative. I It's hard to use the legacies as written and not treat them that way because they're very much written that way. And similarly with Ravaging and Musing you know i i love the idea of musing destruction i love the idea of musing murder and hate and i love that because i think it makes the thelane more interesting it similarly you know ravaging horrible things could be an expression of catharsis ravaging the suffering out of someone could be done in a way that was expressed in a constructive, healthy way, but it would still technically be ravaging. I much prefer those messier ideas. So I think I remember seeing that rule back in the day, but it just lines up with a binary view of the courts and a binary view of glamour dynamics that I always kind of cringe at when I see show up in Changeling.
1: Yeah, that's fair, and at our table, we've always done gentle versus violent. So, if you are ravaging something awful out of somebody, and you know, you don't want to say done with the best intentions, but done in a way that the victim air quotes wouldn't hate that's a little bit different but you're still dealing with you know a lot of the time a negative product i suppose if somebody had a really bad relationship and they still loved the other person even though it's a terrible relationship you could ravage the love out of them
0: that is actually the example i was just thinking of like ravaging the love out of someone who's being abused that their abuser manipulates would be a valid use of ravaging. Right. And just like (laughs) ravage them to the point that they walked away.
1: Right. And then like in the context of gentle versus not gentle, the question is how was it ravaged? Like, was it a long-term process kind of like, you know, therapy or, You know, those really rare cases where somebody actually manages to stick by somebody who's in an abusive relationship and guide them out of it. That would be a gentle application where you could just abuse somebody out of an abusive relationship. And that would be the same thing. It'd give you the same product mechanically, but it wouldn't be gentle. And I think that's a better divide than, you know, straight positive-negative.
0: I agree. I I like that. I mean, I still think there's some messy space in the middle where sometimes a person just needs a shock and awe moment. And I've seen a couple good examples of that in in media recently. The first episode of Pose definitely has that moment. And I think that getting back to character creation thinking through if you wanted to use some of these messy dynamics of like maybe you are that nurturing mothering character but you're also a tough as nails nurturing mothering character and occasionally you go over the line and that's where you're a little broken because what is a changeling if they're not a little broken letting your epiphany dynamics be messy but thinking through them like when you make your character think through The five epiphanies that you remember, because they either went really, really well, or they went really, really horribly, and tell yourself, all right, these stuck with my character, and they stuck with my character because there's some aspect of them that's indicative of what I'm drawn to, and I'm likely to do things like this again. I think that, one, those stories might have some bit of you know, back plot that your ST could use or might inspire other things. But two, I think it really has the potential to flesh out the type of person you are and be super willing to go out of type with your epiphanies.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of trouble understanding and dealing with shame-based dynamics. And when I'm thinking about epiphanies, whenever I'm trying to come up with a good negative one, That's where I go for it. Like, what is this character ashamed of? What is something they hate about themselves that they can't quite stop doing? And if they could tear that out of somebody else, would they?
0: I think that's a really good way to think about it. I also think that's a really good way to think about your character's relationship to your non-dominant legacy. You know, if you get super, super mystical, cosmological about Changeling, then maybe, you know, you just had the two legacies because mixed up court affiliations from Dark Ages, Fae Forward, blah, blah, blah. But if you go the more human aspect and you take the view that the legacies are a choice, what draws you to your legacy? You know, there are a lot of villain stories where... The villain is dark or rebellious or maybe not villain maybe like anti-hero rebel kind of character and they look down on sympathy they look down on softness because they've been hurt and hardened by the world but that's a flaw in them that's something that makes it difficult for them to connect similarly you know, that Sealy character that's super bright and positive all the time and thinks awfully about that Unsealy piece inside of them when that's an essential part of who they are. And it makes them think negatively about Unsealy characters that maybe just aren't as traditional and are perfectly great people because that should be an Unsealy mold more than it is. You know, I I feel like both sides of changelings, when you have changelings that really cling to one court or the other, and not all changelings do, some of them slide between, but the ones that really cling to one court or the other, I think there is some part of the other court that they would hate, but that's inside of them, and that would almost always create shame dynamics.
1: Keeping with the flavor stuff, there's also figuring out your bunk's which i've always viewed as kind of being tied to personality and story much more than just being spur of the moment throw away i drew a card things and bunks are tricky for players a lot so i've always tried to come up with like here's my handful of bunks for this cantrip here's my handful of bunks for this cantrip some of my better system-based character ideas have come from my exploring the powers i never take because i find them uninteresting and trying to find ways to make them interesting the first time i made a character who used saining, this was back when saining had a protection spell in it and that character pretty much never stopped casting the shield power from saining. sometimes the inspiration comes from trying to figure out what casting a spell looks like for a changeling more than it comes from a personality.
0: Bunks are interesting, and I think that thinking about the style of how your character will engage with bunks in advance is really useful. I tend to improv bunks based on the scene I'm in. I don't tend to have them pre-created, but I also know that doesn't work for everyone. and. Even in my case, stepping back and thinking, like, what sorts of bunks would I do normally serves as a really good starting point for a lot of character-driven choices. I also think it's a really good idea, especially if it's your first time playing Changeling, or maybe you haven't played in a while, to build out some bunks and run them by your ST and be like, What do you think about these? Because some STs are all about you exposing yourself to the waking world and going kind of nuts and disrupting autumn reality and that being what bunks are about. And some STs really don't like some of the silliness that emerges from that dynamic. And they want more really integral fairy tale, like prick your finger on the spinning wheel sorts of bunks. And... There was a big argument that arose out of the Changeling Kickstarter comments. You can go back and trudge back through that long archive if you're interested. But that division was very, very stark. And there were a lot of people that really didn't like what was in the early text release that they showed. Because it emphasized a couple of those sillier bunks, which had always been part of the game. So knowing not only how you want to handle bunks, but What other people at the table are going to be comfortable with, especially your ST, can be useful and worthwhile when you're building your first character for a chronicle.
1: One of the other big things to consider is the faction that your character is going to belong to. There was recently an argument about what Kithane means (laughs) online that I shouldn't have been involved in, but deciding whether your character is a Concordian or a Nunehi or a Menehune or a Sien or something else now that create a kith is an option and deciding where their political, cultural, relational allegiances tend to go or maybe they're none of those things and why is that, especially if you're going with the uh, standard kith system, that gives you a place to try to start with your inspiration and then you know, narrows your choices a little bit. So that can be another useful way to begin.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times the available affiliations will come from your storyteller. Either they'll just tell you, play Cathayne, play the standard Kith. I don't want anything weird in my game. Or they'll tell you, I want to run an Nunihi game. I want to run a menune game. More interestingly, you can play whatever you want. We're going to mix things up. And that can be helpful. But a lot of times, especially if they do tell you, hey, we're going to mix things up, play whatever you want. You kind of have to have a conversation about, okay, I can make whatever I want, but why? And what relationship are we going to have with each other? I feel like one of the biggest red flags with an ST is when they don't give you any limitations. Because to me, a lot of times that means they just want to run a game and they don't actually know what they're getting into. I wanted to run a pretty open game in the Chronicle I'm playing now, but I I still told everyone, okay, you can play anything that makes sense in this place and this setting. And if you go off the beaten path... In this case, the beaten path were the main Cathayne and Nunyahi groups make a case, and I'll be open to it, but we'll have to make it work. And I at least gave them that sense that, okay, here are the parameters of what the experience is going to be. But you should definitely know what those parameters are, and you should be concerned if you don't have any. Right.
1: And one of the things that's very worth considering if you are doing a mixed group game is strongly recommending to players that they take a couple of dots of the fey realm regardless because fey has kicked in some pretty nasty limitations for who you can affect
0: yeah it really has and to get slightly more into the territory of that conversation that simon mentioned if you are playing a cross-group game then there should be a conversation about what does Galane mean? And when am I going to need that level of Fay? Because, you know, if you're playing a mixed group game and you have a Motley with a couple Cathane and a couple Nunihi and in an anime, are you all Galane to each other a year down the road? Like, do you become wrapped up in each other's stories? Because... Those questions, while they have a, a deep narrative meaning, and you should kind of know what you're getting into and what kind of character you're going to make because you should imagine how they're going to grow in with these other characters, it also kind of has a, a systematic significance that we'll get into a little bit later when we talk about the rules and crunch a little bit more.
2: The skin-horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and by the by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys, and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange, and wonderful. And only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day, when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender, before Nana came to tidy the room. "'Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle?' "'Real isn't how you're made,' said the Skin Horse. "'It's a thing that happens to you. "'When a child loves you for a long, long time, "'not just to play with, but really loves you, "'then you become real. "'Does it hurt?' asked the rabbit. "'Sometimes,' said the Skin Horse, "'for he was always truthful.' When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once? Like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skid horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby but these things don't matter at all because once you are real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand
1: if you have a permissive storyteller or you're a pushy player i'm a pushy player you can use the create a kith system system is an interesting choice of words there but uh, c20 opened the path to making your own uh, changeling type and a lot of the same things apply here that we already talked about you're going to want to think about what myth this character's face all came from and how much of that is left and how much of it has changed over time you're also going to want to think about what their uh, boon and bane are going to be. And one thing that the system itself doesn't, I don't think it actually recommends you think about, but think about features, the parts of your Mian that give you either uh, cosmetic or sometimes mechanical bonuses. The Slua have a really powerful baked-in advantage in their description, and the Red Caps do, too. And since I read Dark Ages Fae, I've thought of those as features. But thinking about whether or not you want to try to slip something like that in or talk to your ST and just legitimately put something like that in is important.
0: I think that also, if you're going to create a Kith, it's important to ask yourself why you're going to create a kith there are certain areas of the game that changeling has very well covered like i'm gonna do uh create a kith for a different kind of house fairy like why would you do that i mean you have options but on the flip side of that i want to really explore what it means to be a modern internet urban legend so I want to like dig up some urban legends and some creepy pasta and make something kind of sluah-ish. Maybe it's even a derivation of slua. The By Night Studios book kind of brought up the idea of the Slender Man as a derivation of the slua. C twenty, the Slender Man is probably closer to a ghast or a thalane, but that general idea that opens up sort of narrative territory that's interesting about what would traditional Concordian society think about Kithane like that if they started showing up? Because they are distinctly modern in a way that the whole feudal, cling-to-our-old-stories dynamic, you know, there might almost be a Dantean like relationship there. So maybe you want to do create a Kith so that you can emerge some of those themes. Maybe you really want to play a But you really want to play a Nunahi that has kind of the knocker place in relation to indigenous culture. And none of the families are necessarily great for that. So you want to create a kith that goes a few steps further than Thought Crafter. And what does that look like? And knowing the themes you want to tap are going to be really, really important. And knowing the myth that you are a kith of a group of is really going to inform all of that. If you have an ST that's willing to let you do it, you know, to what Simon was talking about with features, having a little bit more flexibility and control over your frailties can be a big advantage. Frailties and boons. Yes,
1: and one of the things, one of the problems that create a creates for you that you don't have to worry about when you're using the the pre-gen splats is what, cultural grouping does that character's species belong to becomes a question because like you might start from i want to make a Nunyahi to fill the role of an ingenious inventor because that is totally a thing exists and i know this story so it fits go for it but sometimes you go with i want to make a veneer which is European, but is it necessarily Cathayne? It's less of a question now than it was in C20, because C20 folded a lot of the European Galane into
0: proper Cathayne society. But it's something to think about. It's also important, and this kind of gets into the next kind of big conversation about creating your character's story, to think about what is this story's relationship to the other character stories. You know, maybe you might play a game where everyone makes Create-A-Kith based on urban legends, and you basically create a whole political affiliation, and you play out what's it mean to be a group of modern urban legends in this chimerical reality dominated by very, very old myths, and what's your place in society. That's a story into itself. That's very different from everyone else is playing a standard kithane and i'm playing a slender man like what does that mean and what are our relationships and so one of the things that i think is really important and i've sort of reached the point where it's a staple of how i do all my chronicles is doing some form of group character creation like everybody can make their concepts and their general backstories on their own But I have at least one session where everyone gets together and we just talk through backstories and what are your relationships to each other, because I'm not doing a whole getting to know you, the Motley is formed, day one thing. I did that in high school. It's terrible. It makes the first three months of game an awkward nightmare of why the hell am I cooperating with these people? And I'm over that story. (laughs) And so if you're not willing to play that story, which most people I know are not anymore, you have to have some sort of group character creation dynamic. And that's a whole process unto itself that the books don't give a ton of guidance on. In the Age of the Ready-Made Characters, there's a little bit more text on that. The Changeling Ready-Made Characters book and the Vampire Ready-Made Characters books have pre-made motley's of the characters. And that can kind of give you an example of, oh, how can we make our characters ourselves, and then make connections they have to each other before the first game. And I'm glad that they have that, but they just kind of give you the finished product. There isn't a lot of, how do we get here when we're making our own characters? I wish there was a little more guidance out there, but I think that's an important part of the process that not everyone thinks about, especially if they haven't been through that miserable getting to know you phase two or three times.
1: Yeah, our game had a new player come in at the beginning of a new chapter and I was like, we're going to do a single episode where we pull everything together and bring this character in and it'll be fine. And after that I was like, well that didn't make any sense we're going to have to spend a couple of games working on integrating this character and it ended up being like five and it's just a big mess when it's not planned out better the other thing that create a Kit drops on you is the different major political organizations have different legacies and you might end up having to make one for you, or two or three for your character so good luck
0: yeah i mean again it depends on how much do you really care about your legacies <laughs> I feel like if you're doing Create a Kith, if you want to look through all the legacies from all the different groups and look at your ST and say, okay, I'm making a very modern urban myth that's manifested in humans. Can I go a little off the beaten path and take like an Unseelie legacy and a Summer legacy? And it makes sense in my story because blah. That's not going to break anything because the legacies aren't that central. Like... They look like they should be on the character sheet, but they're really not. So if I had a player ask me that and I looked at it and it made sense for their character, I'd be like, go to town. (laughs) It's fine. The other thing that gets oftentimes overlooked is autumn backstory. And there are two forms of autumn backstory. There's who was I before Chrysalis. And that part gets touched on, I find, a lot more often. And I think it's important to build out who you were as a human and what led to your chrysalis and spend some real time thinking about that and who are the mortals you maybe left behind, maybe are still connected to, who are the autumn people in your life, because there's going to be one or two autumn people, maybe not like full on throwing stigmas every other statement, but that have really like punched you in the gut a few times with banality And I feel like those people, especially if you care about those people, define a lot of your character's relationship with banality. At one point, I had kind of a questionnaire list of like, answer these questions as you're making your character. And one of the questions I have is, who is an Autumn person that you are in love with or that you love? And it could be an ex, it could be a parent, it could be an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother but someone that you both love and have a deep connection to, but is absolutely an autumn person, at least to you. And I kind of put a note that if you put nothing here, we need to have a conversation about Bedlam because you probably aren't rooted enough in the autumn world. And some people might not like the bleakness of that, but I think it's a fair way to frame Changeling. And so really building that out, I think is important. The other part of what's my autumn backstory is who are you when you're in chimerical death? Because if you had a bunch of people in your life and then you went through chrysalis and then you went, screw this, I'm heading for the hills and you move 10 States away from all of those people and you settle down and you open up a freehold, it's a coffee shop and you know, you do all these things. You're still a mortal person there and you're still probably going to go through chimerical death at some point, And you continue to function in that place out of context with your backstory, backstory. And it's important to know who that mortal is. Even if you don't really end up playing that mortal, it's important to tell your ST who that mortal is. Because that's going to impact things. And I feel like that question really does get overlooked a lot.
1: It's a little bit more extreme than what changelings go through, but whenever I think about the question of what happens while I'm in chimerical death is Yue from Cardcaptor Sakura, because there's a very strong divide between the person he is when he's a normal person and the person he is when he's being an asshole, and it's a good place to start from to think of it as kind of a a little bit stronger than a superhero identity, normal identity question, but also a little bit weaker than completely alternate personality. Although it doesn't have to not be either of those things. You might be a changeling who's going to disastrously try to have a synthesized personality and life, or you might be a changeling who keeps these things completely separate. And how does that work? Someday I might play that changeling and find out how badly that works.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that would be absolutely atrocious. But at the same time, changeling is all about being absolutely atrocious. So that doesn't seem inappropriate to me. You know, getting into the writing, the backstory of the thing that you aren't, but secretly are, or maybe the thing that you aren't, that you publicly are and maybe the changeling is the thing you secretly are depending on how you want to look at it the other thing that i've been thinking about a lot with character creation is playing outside your experience this is something that comes up in urban shadows which for anyone who doesn't know about urban shadows it's a powered by the apocalypse game that is very clearly inspired by world of darkness but chooses to emphasize several different themes than the world of darkness Um, It has two books. It's small. It's affordable and easy to pick up. Powered by the Apocalypse is a super, super narrative system. And the premise is you're in a big city, and there are all of these supernatural things in the city, and you are one of those supernatural things. And it emphasizes playing the other, playing something other than yourself. Both the supernatural is other from you, but also playing from a cultural perspective or a gender perspective or a gender expression perspective that you do not have and i feel like changeling of all the games in the world of darkness is uniquely positioned for that kind of experimentation in terms of your your past lives perhaps being dramatically different and exploring that through remembrance or having a mien and a Autumn identity that don't align in any number of different ways. But doing that can be really complicated and fraught. And depending on who's at your table and the setting you're doing it in, it can be really weird. I'm personally a pretty big believer that the idea of that experiment of trying to extend empathy beyond your own perspective is useful in terms of developing understanding and doing all the kind of high-minded things that people talk about role-playing games being capable of, even though most of the time they are just games. But at the same time, if you're doing that, you also kind of have to be hyper-aware that like the exploration is good in a lot of ways, but you're not going to get it right. And the risks of doing that at your own personal table are very different from the risks of doing that at, say, a big public LARP. And if you attempt to go way outside of your own experience and your own identity at a big public LARP, chances are you're going to stumble into some damaging stereotypes or other things. And so just thinking about that and how much you want to explore it and the setting and how it will be perceived is worth considering, even if you aren't doing it intentionally, just stepping back and when you're almost done and being like, okay, is this totally outside of my purview in any way that I should maybe think about and track given where this game is being played, I think is something worth doing, even though I think it's also worth not playing yourself every time you roll a character.
1: Tacking onto that, Changeling has a pretty intense relationship with your characters being able to cross boundaries as much as in what I feel like the game says and my headcanon about fey souls traveling along familial lines. There are lots of places in the world where familial lines cross-culture and you could end up with changelings having a fey soul that is from a myth, from a story, from a culture that they know nothing about and navigating how you interact with that as a character and how your character achieves a kind of gestalt or doesn't in their life is a super interesting story, but it's one that takes care. Similarly with, you know, gender exploration, changelings aren't necessarily reincarnating in the same gender every time. And when you cross cultural lines, the idea of what constitutes which gender change and as much as having remembrance is framed as being a bonus in the squishier part of the game, the narrative part of the game, you have to try to navigate the question of this memory is really present, is it relevant? Will it hurt me if I act on what I know from this memory? Kind of a level of play that takes place mostly behind the scenes but it doesn't have to and it can be super interesting
0: i really love the idea that the fey reincarnate along familial lines because there's a theme that emerges from that that i think world of darkness has handled very poorly overall and that's the theme of diaspora i have seen this complaint from a lot of my non-white friends that media in general glorifies, the term I've seen used is source land narratives. Black Panther totally played into this. I love the heck out of Black Panther. One of the critiques that I did see about it, though, largely from people that loved it, where they were like, I love it, but there is this one thing, is that there wasn't really a lot of space for African-American identity in Black Panther, aside from the villain That happens with a lot of Asian characters as well. When they show up in popular media, the story that centers on the experience of, you know, Asian Americans, African Americans in a speculative fantastical context doesn't tend to exist. Whereas on the European side of things, to go back to Changeling, we have knockers. Knockers are a perfect example of like, this is not core traditional structure I forget the the name of one of the rarer kits. They're basically the myth that knockers are in the real world about the fae the of mines that are, again, industrial stories, you know, that are much more about the movement of these fairy stories out of the mounds, out of the earth, out of their origins. But whenever a story gets told about a not-white myth, it ends up being about this super, super duper source original version of the myth. But if you really lean into that reincarnation along familial lines and you do that story that you were just talking about, about, oh, this story has awakened within me that I know nothing about, that could be told, and I would imagine largely the people that would play this story and would do it right would be people who have this experience themselves, and want to express it in a fictional context of like, okay, I'm this person who has this big identity, and now this story has emerged in me, and I'm not only going to reconnect with it, but I'm going to reshape it, and it's going to become part of who I am now as much as I become part of it. And that whole reshaping of stories over generations and reincarnations is core to the main kithane experience. And I think that it's really exciting to explore that as it applies outside of the european groups but they're not always necessarily written in a way that encourages that story but i think as with so many things in changeling that can emerge from kind of the empty spaces between what's written and i think it's one of the places that that theme emerges more dominantly within the world of darkness that theme doesn't emerge a
2: lot
1: I began to examine myself, and my own behavior, as an example of womankind. In order to judge, in all fairness and without prejudice, whether what so many famous men have said about us is true, I also thought about other women I know, the many princesses and countless ladies of all different social ranks who have shared their private and personal thoughts with me. No matter which way I looked at it, and no matter how much I turned the question over in my mind, i could find no evidence from my own experience to bear out such a negative view of female nature and habits even so given that i could scarcely find a moral work by any author which did not devote some chapter or paragraph to attacking the female sex i had to accept their unfavorable opinion of women since it was unlikely that so many learned men who seemed to be endowed with such great intelligence and insight into all things could possibly have lied on so many different occasions it was on the basis of this one simple argument that i was forced to conclude that although my understanding was too crude and ill-informed to recognize the great flaws in myself and other women these men had to be in the right thus i preferred to give more weight to what others said than to trust my own judgment and experience sick at heart In my lament to God, I uttered these and many other foolish words, since I thought myself very unfortunate that he had given me female form. Sunk in these unhappy thoughts, my head bowed as if in shame, and my eyes full of tears, I sat slumped against the arm of my chair with my cheek resting on my hand. All of a sudden, I saw a beam of light, like the rays of the sun, shine down into my lap. Since it was too dark at the time of day for the sun to come into my study, I woke with a start. I looked up to see where the light had come from, and all at once saw before me three ladies, crowned and of majestic appearance, whose faces shone with a brightness that lit up me and everything else in the place. As you can imagine, I was full of amazement. Terrified at the thought it might be some kind of apparition come to tempt me, I quickly made the sign of the cross on my forehead. My dear daughter, don't be afraid, for we have not come to do you any harm. But rather, out of pity on your distress, we come to comfort you. Our aim is to help you get rid of those misconceptions which have clouded your mind and made you reject what you know and believe, in fact, to be truth, just because so many other people have come out with the opposite opinion. My dear girl, what has happened to your sense? Have you forgotten that it is in the furnace that gold is refined, increasing in value the more it is beaten and fashioned in the different shapes? Don't you know that it's the very finest things which are the subject of the most intense discussion? Now, if you turn your mind to the very highest realm of all, the realm of high abstract ideas, think for a moment whether or not those philosophers whose views against women you've been citing have ever been proven wrong. In fact, they are all constantly correcting each other's opinion. You seem to have accepted the philosopher's views as articles of faith, and thus irrefutable. My dear, I have to say that it is your naivete which has led you to take what they come out with as truth, return to your senses, and stop worrying your head about such foolishness. Yet we also have a further, more important reason for coming to visit you. Our wish is to prevent others from falling into the same error as you and to ensure that in the future, all worthy ladies and valiant women are protected from those who have attacked them. The female sex has been left defenseless for a long time now, like an orchard without a wall, and bereft of a champion to take up arms in order to protect it. Now, however, it is time for them to be delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh. For this reason, we three ladies whom you see before you have been moved by pity to tell you that you are to construct a building in the shape of a walled city. Sturdy and impregnable. This has been decreed by God, who has chosen you to do this with our help and guidance. Only ladies who are of good reputation and worthy of praise will be admitted to this city. Let us begin with Eve. One of the biggest stumbling blocks you run into as a player making a character is... You either end up in a group where everybody chose similar skill sets, or you end up in a group where you're missing an important skill set. And that doesn't have to be game-breaking if you have a good storyteller, but it often is. The classical example is having, you know, the Holy Trinity of role-playing characters. You have your damage dealer, your tank, and your healer, and not having a healer. And that doesn't have to be game breaking and changeling, because if you're dealing with a mostly chimerical game, chimerical damage heals real fast. But then you're still left with the problem of what happens when I botch so bad I fall on my face and I take damage, or what happens when we push it too hard and the cops get involved, or whatever. And so, if you have a good storyteller, they'll help you navigate what holes exist in the group. And whether or not they do need to be filled because changeling is technically a classless game you don't have to have any particular skill filled if you have a big enough diversity of skills available and your players are creative and your storyteller is flexible but those are a lot of ifs sometimes
0: yeah they really are and also knowing what kind of game is going to be run which unfortunately sometimes your st won't even know you know in all honesty i don't think i've ever run a chronicle that ended up being the game i thought i was going to run now a lot of that has to do with the fact that i tend to adapt pretty heavily to my players but like the game i'm in now i expected there to be combat and as soon as I started throwing combat situations, my players would always immediately go, oh, wow, how can I use this really inventive art to get out of this combat? I don't want to be in a fight. That that sounds dangerous. I might die. Okay, bye. Cool. Boom. Illusion. We're running. And I was like, every, t- every time, guys? I mean, okay, that's fine. You guys got successes on those illusory distract the enemy and flee roles. So I'm going to let you do that. You clearly don't want to get into combat. So we're not, I just, I'll do a very narrative, social, political, problem-solving game. That's great. I have no problem with that. The knocker in the group had purchased a fair bit of Dragon's Ire. And he went, well, crap. And I was like, yeah, I totally didn't know that's how this Chronicle was going to go. You want to respend some of those points because that's a lot of character creation sitting on that line that says Dragon's Sire, and we had to have a conversation about adjusting his character. Some storytellers wouldn't do that as far into the Chronicle as I was willing to do that, and I was willing to do it because it was like two or three dots of art that were dead weight, and that is a lot in a relatively low-powered street-level game. <laughs> It was kind of let him reshuffle and respec or let him re-roll. And we all liked his character, so didn't want to do that.
2: But as much as
0: you can, find out from your ST and find out from the other players. Like, are you going to avoid combat? What are your expectations? And if you find you have expectations that are dramatically misaligned with the other players or the ST, you know, you shouldn't have to totally just bend and do whatever everybody else wants, but also communicate your own expectations and see if the group can get into an alignment because that'll avoid situations like those wasted points of dragon's ire.
1: And changeling has a unique challenge. We'll call it because the realm system determines what you can affect and the art system determines what you can do. And you can just as easily run into issues where nobody took actor and your storyteller has lots of human-centric social problems that need solving and arts might be the easiest way to do that, but nobody has actor. C20 is a little bit more forgiving about that because of the fake-a-realm thing you can do, but talking to the other players and the storyteller about what you're taking and who the antagonists might be is super, super useful
0: cheetah realm is great for the oh god i don't have scene but i really need to do something with scene in this moment okay cool i'm gonna go for it as like a an occasional burst it's not sustainable long term because it costs a glamour and if you're blowing an extra glamour especially in something like actor if you're using actor it's probably a weird effect like it might not be but it's probably a weird effect that gets expensive like that's a baseline of two glamour right there before you add scene or time if you want to do that glamour pools are just not big enough to sustain that as a regular thing so yeah i mean c20 is a little more forgivable but you should as much as possible make sure people aren't doubling up too much on realms the other thing about realms that i've discovered in my current chronicle is man make sure that you actually use that affinity realm you know you start out with a concept and a story and somewhere it gets crystallized into a kith whether it's create a kith or whether you take one of the published kits which will be using the published kits the vast majority of the time Pay attention to that Affinity Realm, because I have a couple players where they didn't really use their Affinity Realm that much. Which, honestly, not all of them make as much sense. There are a couple Affinity Realms where I'm like, we really expect you to have prop, but you have actor. Okay, that's fine, whatever. But thinking about that as you're building your character and thinking, what are the effects I want to do? I almost think that starting with Realm and flowing from Realm to Art... And really thinking through what are the things I'm going to be able to do with this is a little bit better than starting with the art and going to the realm. Because, you know, if you start with the art and go to the realm, you might end up out of sync with your affinity realm, because there are a lot of the arts that even if they technically do work with all the realms, are just a lot more useful with certain realms than with others. And Things can get easily out of sync there. Min-maxing with the arts and the realms is not an exact science, so taking some time with it is is worthwhile.
1: The problem you get into a lot if you are doing a group character creation, or if the ST is verbose about the kind of story they're trying to tell, is that you end up with players who build characters to have skills. But they never actually get around to building their personality and their backstory. And, I mean, some people play games to do problem-solving, and okay, but adversity is the thing that makes stories interesting, and I have trouble dealing with people who just want to float through all the problems.
0: I have definitely experienced that as well. Changeling is not a game where you're going to float through all the problems. Like, the arts are powerful, But unless you're doing all chimerical effects, you can't really rapid-fire them. And chimerical reality is only going to account for a portion of your problems. Sooner or later, you're going to have a Dante or an Autumn person or, you know, just a mortal in the way. And you're going to have to go outside of chimerical effects. So... Glamour pools aren't huge. You can only unleash so often. You need to problem solve and you need to engage with things narratively. And making characters that are capable of that, I think is really important. And thinking through the rest of your skills. You know, we've talked a fair bit about arts and realms, but thinking about the top half of your character sheet is really important. Don't make a character that can't sense chimerical reality don't make a character with no combat skills you know when i make a support character i still give them a couple points of brawl a couple points of firearms just so when we get into combat i'm not dead weight i can do a thing i'm not going to devote a meaningful portion of their character creation points there if that's not what they're about but i'm still going to do something with it i'm still going to give a combat character A little bit of investigation or something, so they're not dead weight while we're figuring things out between battles. There's a tendency in a lot of other games that are, I'll say, a little more board gamey to min-max hard. Just don't do it in Changeling. I I can't say this hard enough, don't min-max that hard, because it's only going to help you so much.
1: Right, and world of darkness's big min max trap is the merits and the flaws. I've never really understood like maxing out all your merits and maxing out all your flaws to get those extra points and to balance everything out because especially with changeling, a lot of the flaws are kinda catastrophic or basically meaningless, like there's almost no mid ground on a lot of them and it gets back to building a character out of narrative because like, yes, I could definitely take idyllic memory, but that makes no sense for this character is often a thought I have. But World of Darkness lets you do that.
0: Yeah, it, it does. I have to admit when I was a tweeny little teenage role player i would not make a world of darkness character without seven points and flaws because i would have my full 21 freebies so help me god 22 freebies i guess it is and it was awful like i make characters now and i scour the flaws looking for things that fit my character i rarely end up with more than three points and i kind of feel the same way about merits that Strong-willed merit that I mentioned that one of my players has right now. He doesn't use it a ton. It does kind of make sense for his character concept. He's a grump and a boggin, and he runs a business, and it, it does fit his aesthetic. But at the same time, he took it I think because he thought it would be awesome from a system standpoint, and we're just we didn't end up running a very crunchy game. Like I said, it's it's useful, but he doesn't use it a lot of the time. I feel like Merits and Flaws can add cool flavor to your character, but it should be more, what's the one thing I want to grab that's going to kind of define my character that I really want to focus on? And you're not you're not going to get that out of seven points of disparate bits and pieces. You know, don't take, I'm colorblind and I'm deaf and I have a fatal curse because you're not ever actually going to narratively engage with all of that in a way that's meaningful you know whereas if it's i want to play a cursed character and i want this curse that's following me and maybe i'm fated to become a Dante and i don't know and i'm gonna get plot cookies about this that can be a lot of fun but like pick one and run with it that seven-point cap, you know, I'm at the point in my role-playing now where if I see a player and they show up with seven points at flaws, I kind of want to have a conversation with them about it because why?
1: The other problem you run into with blowing up your, your merits and your flaws is it also gives your character a little bit less room to grow into. I'm one of those people who, like, I build out a character and then... I also plan out their first, like, three or four XP expenditures, whether that's a level up in a different system, or just, like, my wish list for things to put more XP in. Because, and, you know, that plan never really survives contact with the game, but it changes. And it gives me goals for things to, like, work into the background of the story that aren't, like, super important, but fill... Downtime, fill, quiet moments in the story kind of a thing. And the players who start with the extra points from buying all their flaws don't go as far with that, is a thing I've noticed.
0: Yeah, I can definitely agree with that, because a lot of flaws and merits, they kind of pigeonhole you if you're not careful about it. The other thing that often kind of relates to where your flaws or merits come from our backgrounds you know we just had a whole episode about freehold so don't want to go too far into holding but building your backgrounds is really important and I find changeling kind of has a similar dynamic to mage and that there's a fair bit of obligatory background like holding is important and You know, do you want to have treasures? Your rank is important if you're playing within a pretty deeply culturally systematic setting. Like if you're part of a Concordian court, then it matters that you have mentors and you have rank and your freehold becomes something very different if you have rank. And making sure that your backgrounds align and dealing with group backgrounds is kind of a big deal. You know, if you take contacts, they need to be actual people or you need to have a conversation with your ST and say, all right, we're going to have contacts and influence and we're going to treat those as kind of mushy and say, "Okay, I know some people and these are kind of the spheres of the world. Like I know underworld people or I know people in business or I know people in journalism or I know people in activist circles, you know, you need to spend some time putting some parameters around those. And if you want to say, hey, I know some activist people, maybe you use your contacts by, okay, there's this situation, I want to roll my contacts and decide however you're going to manage that with your ST and just see if I'm able to get some information on XYZ or call in a favor with allies, they really need to be fixed people. And so what are they? Are they, you know, if you're in a mixed party, if one of your allies is like a high feudal sort of character... And you're okay with that. Maybe you're a little bit looser, but like you have a hardcore rebel in your motley. What does that mean? So talking through some of that, I've found most players keep those cards very close to the chest. And I find in general, players keep things too close to the chest. If you have a side game with your ST, maybe it was because you missed a game. Maybe it's just because downtime action and you get information from it. Share with the rest of the group unless there's a solid reason not to. If you have allies at that group character creation session, share your allies unless there's a specific reason to keep them hidden. You know, have some conversations about those things. And I think that that can create a much more dynamic game. It also creates those moments for, you know, Shelly to look over at Jack and be like, hey, don't you have a friend over here? Because if everyone else knows what's on your character sheet in an in-character flavorful way, you have those moments where it's like, hey, can you tap this thing and give us a hand? Because I just found out about this and it like pinged my head that you could help with that because you're not always going to think of it. And if you think about novels and stories and movies, those moments happen a lot.
1: Yeah, one of the places that World of Darkness Like, I just got done trashing World of Darkness for Merits and Flaws, but one of the places I feel like Merits and Flaws in World of Darkness could have solved a couple of problems is other games use the concept of a dependent non-player character as a flaw, and that denotes a ward, a child, somebody who your storyteller is going to use to get at you, And World of Darkness doesn't do that. And instead, I think a lot of the background hoarding among players happens because there's no way to mark, like, this is fair game, these things are part of my character, please don't steal my XP. And if I was going to add one flaw to the game, the whole World of Darkness, it would be the DNPC flaw. Because then, you have that little flag, you stick it in, bob the contact... And you're good, and the rest of your backgrounds are more or less sacrosanct. Like, you can overtax them, but that's you, not the
0: storyteller. Yeah, I do think there is a flaw that fits that mold that I have a ward, someone I need to take care of. But it's like a flaw, and it's a flaw that doesn't get taken very often, and people forget about it. It's not like a dynamic that's built into contacts and allies. One of the problems I've always had with backgrounds is they're really, really cheap, and they offer a lot of benefit. And I find there are two types of players. There are players that are like, I'm going to spend like 10 of my freebies on backgrounds. ha, Or there are players that don't go beyond their base backgrounds at all because eh, it's complicated and I don't really want to think about it. You know, I tend to try to spend at least three to four freebies on backgrounds because it's character creation. This is when they're easy to get and they're really powerful. I kind of wish, given their price to power ratio, that they had some systems built into them. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit outside of the the podcast where it's like, okay, I have allies. But what's the downside of that? What's the maintenance cost? This person's an ally because I owe them a favor. This person's an ally because I promised to take care of their kid and keep an eye on them out in, you know, the deep, dark, horrible world of darkness. And maybe I have to go and do that sometimes. You know, these contacts, I'm a contact for them too. And they're going to come to me and expect some turnabout or this background's going to atrophy. And I think if they were a little bit easier to get once the game started... But they had some of those dynamics, so maybe they could ebb and flow and go up and down during gameplay, I think they'd be a lot more interesting. And I mean, there's an occasional word here or there, like, oh, your ally might ask you for a favor, but I found it just doesn't get used a lot. And it's not systematized in a way that scratches the itch of those players that want to play the game for the systems, which I found there are far more of those players than I realized
1: like willpower, backgrounds and Changeling are one of those things that I think are underappreciated too. Like there are very few problems that money doesn't solve. And it gets into a weird issue because I feel like they're also a little bit too abstract. Like getting a little bit too like, yeah, there should be some maintenance here, whether it's at table or not. There's also the question of like, okay, you took contacts and they're all criminal contacts you also took a couple of dots of streetwise how are these things different and like there, there are a lot of little questions about that kind of a thing that don't bother you until you're like 10 or 15 games in and you're like oh I might have wasted some of those points because this is redundant and it's always a little bit hard to anticipate how that's going to work, but some of them are a little bit more obvious than others, Streetwise and Criminal Contacts being the easiest.
0: Yeah, I I think that also gets down to your ST and how well they know how to use the role. Like, on the flip side of that, if I had a character who's like, I've got four dots in Criminal Contacts and no Streetwise, I'd be like, no, you don't. You do not. Those criminal contacts don't respect you. And the next time you show up, they're going to put a bullet in your head. Take Streetwise. So there's like a flip side there. And I, I would use Streetwise for slightly different roles, like in the moment, navigating the street. You know, you're in a city where you don't have contacts. I've, I've moved you for a story. Streetwise is going to be useful. Your contacts won't. But some of those are things that you have to think very abstractly about. And I mean, it does get weird. And, and I can definitely think of other examples of that overlap. Like, oh, I want to take high business contacts because I want to, I want to have influence. And I can only purchase two resources because I'm out of points, but I have like these three points in business contacts. And it's like, but do you really? Ah, so it, the whole thing gets a little weird, and it kind of comes down to how much are you willing to gloss over in the name of the system's just here for guidance, let's play our game. Because the amount of that will inform a lot of those decisions.
1: Yeah, using the the streetwise criminal contacts example, your criminal contacts don't respect you, maybe you took a couple of dots of etiquette. You could fudge it that way. It all kind of depends on creativity and flexibility and sometimes those things aren't as easy to find in the system.
0: Finding a face and body for our Frankenstein proved more difficult than we thought. Fifty years earlier, we could have gotten away with a single blurry picture, or said he was a recluse who feared photographs would steal his soul. Our Tom had to be one of us. An urban butterfly, a creature of Saturday night dancing and Fire Island beach parties, and photo shyness was incompatible with our pride and vanity. Pablo had the solution. From his bag, he pulled a thick folder of the late Joe Beams photos and spread them on Derek's coffee table, sweeping aside the Chinese takeout containers that had blossomed like mushrooms at some point in the preceding hours. There, he said pointing to a black-haired dancing boy with his back to the camera. And there,
2: another boy, shirtless on the beach. Black hair cut the same way. And this one. He looked at them right. You could see it. The rough outline of the same man in dozens of different ones. We find photographs of men who meet this general type. Average height, black hair, muscular build, stubble. And that's him. I can work them in the darkroom to blur
0: out the parts that don't fit, or add distinguishing marks, jug ears, maybe,
2: or a birthmark over his jugular. It's perfect, Derek said. No author photos, no glossy headshots, candids, glimpses, a life lived out of the public eye. Because to succeed his myth, Tom had to be dead.
0: Otherwise, the charade became too complicated to maintain, and who would know, in this city where the dying stacked up faster than firewood, that this one particular name, in the long litany, had never been an actual person? Who could prove that Tom Minnick was any more fictional than the rest of the gay men and women who fled horrific, far-off small-town lives and reinvented themselves upon arrival in our city? Sometimes changing their names and cutting all family ties, and spinning the most ridiculous lies to cover them. We laughed about it on our way out, giggled like schoolboys plotting a prank. The streets of my city felt alive and inviting in a way they hadn't for
2: months.
1: those were our thoughts on character creation for changing the dreaming. I know Victor and I appreciate everybody who's listening, and thank you for putting up with our sniffles today. This has been Walking Away from Arcadia.